0: When you pass through the gate of Mountain View Cemetery in Butte, Montana, American flags and signs point the way to the final resting place of one of the mining city's most celebrated native sons, that white leather, star-spangled suit-wearing, motorcycle-jumping stuntman, and daredevil, Evil Knievel. But a few hundred yards away from Knievel's manicured gravesite is a neglected corner of the historic cemetery that looks like it hasn't seen a lawnmower in years. And it's there, way back in the pauper section, that two dozen or so carpenters, electricians, and teachers gathered last August to honor their fallen hero.
1: He was half-white, half-Indian, and 100% I-W-W. (laughs) We love you, Frank. We'll burn some sage
0: for Frank. Frank is Frank Little. He was a Wobbly, an organizer with the Industrial Workers of the World hellbent on uniting workers across the globe into one big union and overthrowing capitalism.
2: Organize them all.
0: Organize all right. them all.
3: Organize all. every brother and sister. Well, we in
0: 1917, Little came here to do just that, to unify and radicalize Buttes miners in their fight against the Anaconda Mining Company for higher wages and safer working conditions.
4: I'm going to read a little bit of the preamble to the IWW. It was the same same one that Frank read. The working class and the employing class have nothing in common. There could be no peace so long as hunger and want are found among millions of working people. And the few who make up the employing class have all the good things in life. Amen. Amen. You're You're Frank.
0: Frank. Frank. <laughs> Little's anti-capitalist and anti-war rhetoric fired up huge crowds of workers. But back then, the world was at war a war in which the Allies depended on Butte's copper. Some saw him as a serious threat. Local labor leader Amanda Curtis holds up a grainy black-and-white photograph of Little. In it, he's wearing his signature Stetson fedora and a defiant stare. Then she recounts the tale of what happened to Little, just 13 days after he got to town, in the wee hours of the morning, 101 years ago to the day.
3: On August 1st, 1917, fellow worker Frank Little, after organizing a strike of metal miners against the Anaconda Company, was dragged by six masked men from his Butte, Montana rooming house. Without his clothes or his crutches, he was tied to the back of a Cadillac, dragged through the streets to the nearby Milwaukee Road trestle, where he was strangled to death with a hangman's noose. No one was ever arrested or punished
0: curtis leaves out some of the most grisly details like the fact that his kneecaps appear to have been completely scraped off or that a note pinned to his underwear threatened others take notice first and last warning along with the numbers 3777 the calling card of frontier vigilantes most historians believe that the anaconda company was behind little's killing but no one knows for sure Whoever the guilty party was, the legend of the hobo agitator lives on. Little's funeral is rumored to have been the biggest ever in Butte's history. An estimated 10,000 workers line the route of the funeral procession. And more than a century later, labor rights advocates still make the pilgrimage from far and wide to pay him tribute. And drink a lot of whiskey.
5: <laughs> Help yourself some Give more whiskey. whiskey.
6: Give me more whiskey.
0: After more passionate <laughs> toasts and more than one teary eye, the banjo comes out.
5: Oh, solidarity
1: forever. Solidarity forever, solidarity
5: forever
0: the,
5: makes us
0: the verses seem to go on forever, but the whiskey runs dry. Some folks trickle over to Little's grave to place a flower. Others stand still, reading the epitaph etched onto his plain tombstone. Frank Little: 1879 to1917. Slain by capitalist interests for organizing and inspiring his fellow men. I'm Norris Axe. Welcome to Richest Hill, a podcast about the past, present, and future of one of America's most notorious Superfund sites from Montana Public Radio.
2: Richest Hill is supported by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, family-owned, operated, and argued over since 1980, reminding listeners to think for themselves but drink with others. SierraNevada.com
0: Depending on your politics, Frank Little was an uncompromising revolutionary who dared to challenge corporate power or an unpatriotic radical who got what he deserved. And yet his murder remains one of Montana's darkest unsolved mysteries. So today, we're going to explore the David versus Goliath struggle between working people and the handful of men, and then one company that called the shots on the richest hill. Because the things that happened here a century ago, they laid the groundwork for who's on the hook today for Butte's massive Superfund cleanup. This is episode three, first and last warning. I'm back out on the streets of Uptown Butte, walking around with geologist-turned-historian Dick Gibson, who we met last time. He says in the earliest days of Butte's mining boom, everyone was trying to stake their claim and get in on a piece of the gold and then silver action, which meant...
4: Everybody had their own mine, everybody had their own smelter, everybody had their own everything.
0: If you look at old photos of Butte, the hill is jammed with head frames straddling mine shafts, crude smelters, mills, smokestacks. There's not a blade of grass or a tree anywhere in sight. And there are huge heaps of yellowish mine waste, like, everywhere. Gibson says that's because back when there were a bunch of different companies, the way it worked was...
4: You bring up the rock and you dump it right there, especially the waste rock. Then somehow or another, you got to do something to separate out the good stuff, the ore, from the waste rock. So that means that all over Butte, there are little islands, an acre here, three acres there, that are essentially waste dumps.
0: The methods used to mine, crush, and extract all that good stuff all over town, right next to where people lived, is super important. Because it sowed the seeds of the pollution problems the mining city has been dealing with ever since. But for now, we're going to focus on who controlled the means of production. This whole every-man-for-himself phase on the Butte Hill didn't last long. Because when demand for electricity started to surge, all that buried copper, which until then was something of a nuisance, began to glitter in a whole new way.
4: As as we got into the 1880s here in Butte, the, the wealth, the richness of this mineral deposit became very obvious and the two main copper kings, William Clark and Marcus Daly, were after it.
0: Butte has an enduring, unrequited romance with the copper kings. Were they visionary entrepreneurs who risked everything to build Montana and make Butte the copper capital of the world? Were they cutthroat capitalists who stopped at nothing to leverage their domination of the mining industry into political power at the national level? Maybe both are true, but to find out more, I decided to visit one of their former homes. I've walked past the crimson, three-story, Elizabethan-Victorian-style Copper King mansion on West Granite Street countless times. It's by far the most imposing residence in historic Uptown Butte. In March, I finally worked up the nerve to climb the stairs and venture inside.
6: Hello. Hi there. Hi. Are you Erin? I am. I'm Nora. Hi, Nora. Nice to meet you. Hi. Thank you. you.
0: A charming, silver-haired older lady with sparkling blue eyes greets me at the door. We sit down at a banquet table, and Erin Siegel tells me that nowadays, she and her brother run the Copper King Mansion as a luxury bed and breakfast. But it's been in her family for generations.
6: Our grandmother, Mrs. Anna Cody, bought this house in 1953. Prior to that, it had been a convent.
0: And prior to that, it was built and inhabited by William Clark, not the one that went on a cross-country expedition with his buddy Meriwether Lewis, but William Andrews Clark, who, after getting his start as a merchant and then a banker out west, came to Butte to make his fortune.
6: One of the most fascinating things about Clark is the way we perceive the winning of the West. It was all this rough and tumbling kind of sort of thing, you know. But uh, when you consider that everybody wanted to make a million dollars mining for gold, and a few did, and they
0: were lucky men. In this case, Clark's gold was actually Butte's copper. By the time he built this 34-room mansion in the late 1880s, it cost him a whole half a day's wage. Erin Siegel moved in here with her grandmother at age 13, after her parents divorced. I asked her what it was like to grow up in the home of one of the wealthiest Americans who ever lived. My estimation was,
6: I felt like a princess. Or else, I thought everybody in Butte lived like this. (laughs) (laughs) All kids had a big old house like yours. And look at the houses around here. I mean, there's beautiful
0: mansions around here, so why wouldn't I think that? As she guides me through the museum-like 10,000-square-foot mansion, I imagine how enchanting it must have seemed to a young girl. Every room overflows with period furnishings that either belong to Clark or that her family has collected over the years. When you look at this mirror, you notice how
6: it sparkles. You kind of have to look at it carefully. Oh, it does sparkle. Uh Well, (laughs) the reason it sparkles like that, this mirror is backed with diamond dust.
5: Get out of here.
0: (laughs) All of the (laughs) built-in features glow with Clark's passion for art and extravagance. When you look out, the windows are a kaleidoscope of stained glass. When you look up, the ceilings are hand-painted with colorful frescoes. And when you look down, the floors gleam with exotic woodwork. I feel like I've stepped through a portal to the Gilded Age. And then there are all the innovations that Buttes Copper made possible during the Second Industrial Revolution.
6: This was uh, the first house in Butte that was electrified. When this house was built, <laughs> they electrified, I mean, they wired the entire house, and so these are original sh- chandeliers. The shades going up are for the gas jets, and so they used the gas, and the ones coming down are for the electricity.
0: I think they just weren't sure <laughs> how well this electricity was going to work. <laughs> We pause in a reception room to discuss what kind of man Clark really was. In Siegel's view, though he was a business mogul, he also demonstrated some noblesse oblige. He wasn't such a miser. He wanted people to enjoy what he gleaned from the mines. The story goes that one day, he was making rounds of his various properties in Butte, and he saw some children playing in the dirt.
6: He asked the guy, he said, well, why are they playing in the dirt? And, and this manager, he says, well, they have nowhere else to play. And so Clark apparently gave him a blank check and said, I want you to build the finest park
0: in the West. That park was the Columbia Gardens, a verdant 64-acre Eden filled with an amusement park, a carousel, playgrounds, picnic areas, dance pavilions, a greenhouse, even a petting zoo. More than profit, though, political power was Clark's holy grail. Eventually, he bribed his way into the U.S. Senate with so much scandal and corruption that Mark Twain called him as rotten a human being as can be found anywhere under the flag. I asked Erin what she makes of Clark's checkered reputation. Rich people
6: today are as ruthless as they were yesterday.
0: (laughs) This just isn't, there is no difference. In the end, Clark traded Montana for a mansion quadruple the size on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. When he died, he was worth what today would amount to billions. But it was his arch nemesis, Irish immigrant Marcus Daly, who would lay the foundation of a copper empire and cast the mold of Butte's next century. Daly built a whole new company town a few miles down the road from Butte, expanding the mining industry's toxic legacy even further down the river valley. If you've ever driven through southwest Montana on the interstate, it's pretty hard to miss the immense smokestack looming over the town of Anaconda. It's taller than the Washington Monument. To some, it's so menacing, it gets compared to the Dark Tower in Mordor, you know, from Lord of the Rings. To me, and anyone else seduced by the vestiges of industry, this National Historic Landmark beckons like a siren song, especially because it's usually off limits. Last year, however, in honor of its 100th birthday, tours were offered. So in August, I hopped onto a packed yellow school bus and we set off for the top of Smelter Hill.
4: Welcome to Anaconda Smokestack and the Centennial.
0: Up close, the oversized chimney is so tall that standing next to its base, I can't see the top. It's like looking up at an ancient brick redwood, except way bigger. But before I can get over the scale, I spot 90-year-old Don the all dressed up in a festive bowler hat and necktie, gazing at the stack with a look of faraway recognition.
1: I have worked right in there in the treaters and knocking arsenic off of the, off of the uh, chains that were inside there uh, in 1949.
0: If you didn't catch it, he said his job was to knock arsenic off chains hanging down inside the smokestack, which is the only surviving part of a sprawling smelter facility that used to be up here. The smelter was the brainchild of savvy, self-taught Irish miner Marcus Daly. When he arrived in Butte, he sniffed out one of the richest copper deposits ever found, a mine named the Anaconda, after the giant predatory serpent. With backing from investors, he founded the Anaconda Mining Company and started making a killing. Daly and his Anaconda Syndicate got even richer by investing their profits into this huge smelter. Basically a giant furnace that alchemizes unrefined ore into metal. It was so titanic, they built a town around it to house the workforce. For almost an entire century, Anaconda's smelter juiced molten copper out of Butte's raw riches and belched toxic smoke out over a huge swath of the river valley. The chains Don LaRanger is talking about were part of a system installed later on to capture that pollution using electricity. It would
1: attract the arsenic. And then then they'd shut the high voltage off and you'd reach in there with the bamboo poles and knock the arsenic off down into these bins, and then they would haul it away.
0: That abatement system helped, but it didn't capture all 75 tons of arsenic that were being unleashed every day. Chronic exposure to arsenic can cause skin, lung, and bladder cancers. I asked the ranger if he wore any protective gear to limit exposure to arsenic during his two stints here, in the 1940s and again in the
1: 60s. You could wrap in the gauze and wear a mask. But uh, I don't know, people hesitate to wear the mask because they, it was hard to breathe then. Sure. And so you're... Sucking it in say, oh, the heck with that, let it hang here. Oh my gosh. So anyway, it, it, was, uh, it was quite an experience. But uh, I'm glad I did it. It's a lot of memories now.
0: During the smelter's long run, the laundry list of hazardous waste it produced contaminated much of Anaconda's air, water, and soil. Which is why the 300-square-mile area surrounding us is, wait for it, a super fun site. For reference, 300 square miles is roughly the size of all five boroughs of New York City combined, or two Denver Colorados. Even before the turn of the 20th century, it's said that on some days the sulfur and smoke in Butte were so thick, you couldn't see across the street. That's partly why Daly built his smelter city 26 miles down the road, to relieve the mining city from the worst industrial air pollution. Meanwhile, the Anaconda Company kept coiling up, over, and sideways around the industry. As I wind my way around the perimeter of the smelter stack, I bump into more former employees going for a walk down memory lane. Where are you guys from? Anaconda. What are your names?
2: Tom Pozega, my wife Joanne.
0: Pozega says in the 12 years he worked up here, he wore a lot of hats, literally.
2: I did everything from a laborer. I was a tapper, a slag runner. I uh, worked at the tram worked on the water, uh, the tailing department, and I finished up the a pipe fitter.
0: Posaga says you couldn't help but be aware of the workplace health hazards at the smelter. There was so much physical evidence.
2: When you went home at night, you cough up all the black stuff and use dishwashing soap when you showered to scrub your skin. And then you go take a steam bath and all the black feed and all that would come out of your pores. And you'd look at the old guys out there and all that, you could see where the health issues were.
0: Even so, he says if the smelter was still going, he'd be right back up here.
2: You had good pay, good benefits. Yeah, it was a a great place to work, you know. Support a lot of families, send a lot of kids through college, but it was a dirty no good hellhole.
0: Talking to Anaconda Smelterman and miners in Butte has got me thinking a lot about the balance of sacrifice and reward. How much are we willing to put up with? And is it worth it? People here literally risk their lives in return for a decent paycheck, a roof over their heads, a chance to raise a family. But those benefits workers got in exchange for harvesting America's copper were not gifts bestowed by a benevolent management. They were fought, bled, and died for. We'll circle back to that in the second half of this episode. Stay with us.
2: Richest Hill is supported by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, family-owned, operated, and argued over since 1980, reminding listeners to think for themselves, but drink with others. SierraNevada.com
0: It's lunchtime at Butte High, and biology teacher Amanda Curtis has a break. So in a classroom decorated with posters of pollinators, we sat down at a lab table to talk labor history.
3: So I'm a member of the Butte Teachers Union, and I'm the second vice president of MFPE, the Montana Federation of Public Employees. We're Montana's largest union with 25,000 members.
0: I met Curtis at Frank Little's grave over the summer. She was the one leading union anthems. She's a former state legislator, a vocal advocate for workers' rights, and it's clear that she's from Billings, but is all about Butte. Butte is the only place I've ever been where you can drive
3: down the street and see an extravagant mansion that is untouchable, unimaginable, unenterable to the average working person, surrounded on every side, not only by little mining shacks, but by boarding houses where miners actually had to shift sleep in shifts. You didn't rent a room, you rented a bed for eight hours, and that was one-third of a day. I've never been any place where the juxtaposition of wealth and working class were so visible in every place you look.
0: Today, Butte-Silverbow County still has greater income inequality than the rest of the state. And the roots of the class divide and struggle go deep. I mentioned to Curtis that as I dug into Butte's labor history, I was surprised to learn that it was actually while the Copper Kings were warring for all-out corporate and political domination that Butte became a labor stronghold. Because the mining tycoons played really dirty.
3: Looking back to that history and talking about how often capitalists who own the majority of the capital are able then to also control the legislation that is supposed to be governing their very industry is a really key aspect and something that we very much are still seeing
0: today. As these big men supersize the mining industry, Word traveled back across the pond that an industrial hub was blossoming on the western frontier. Immigrant laborers from around the world started making a beeline for Butte and imported their politics with them. Many of them ended up in the dark, dirty underground mines. And when miners started dying off from lung diseases like silicosis or in gnarly accidents, they stepped up to protect their own.
3: Yeah, I'm not sure many people realize how many firsts Butte had.
0: Miners here formed the country's first ever miners' union, way back in 1878, and then became the first local in the even more powerful Western Federation of Miners. The miners' union bargained not just for a living wage, but for things like death benefits for surviving family members. And during the reign of the Copper Kings, they had big, important wins, like the right to an eight-hour workday. And so that sets a precedent and demonstrates
3: to other workers anywhere in the world, really, that you can create your own solutions to your problems.
0: But it wasn't just miners who were getting organized. Everyone, from chimney sweeps to paper boys, had a union. And so did women.
3: We saw the Women's Protective Union organize in Butte to really give more power to a lot of widows whose husbands had died in the mines and then were, that needed to go to work to support their families and who were subject to exploitation, who were given menial jobs and who were given really dangerous jobs.
0: All in all, more than 34 unions sprouted out of the barren hillside. In just two decades, the richest hill had become the Gibraltar of American unionism. But this golden age of labor was fleeting. Pretty soon, John D. Rockefeller's posse over at Standard Oil took a shine to Buttes Copper and to the Anaconda Company, which by now had swallowed a huge chunk of Montana's natural resources, mines, timber, coal beds, waterworks, and had assets galore like mills, smelters, railroads, real estate and newspapers. The oil giants convinced Marcus Daly and his cadre of business partners to sell out. After a few valiant attempts at resistance, the other copper kings followed suit. Curtis says that hyper consolidation in the mining industry turned out to be a bad deal for labor. When there
3: are multiple employers, then employees can shop around for the contract that's best. And so electing good leadership and then the leadership being able to negotiate is, it's complicated when you've only got one option.
0: I head with Dick Gibson, our friendly neighborhood historian, down Granite Street to check out Anaconda's old headquarters. We stop in front of a beautiful ornate brick building, which used to house Montana's first and most elegant department store, Hennessy's.
4: The top floor there, the sixth floor, was a euphemism across the mining industry in the United States for the Anaconda Company. If you were in Michigan or even the coal mines of Kentucky and said the sixth floor, they knew you meant the Anaconda Company. The sixth floor was the obnoxious, corporate, money-grubbing god of the, the the city of Butte, and its reaches extended across the state.
0: Anaconda's stranglehold on politicians and the not-so-free press was known as the copper collar. Gibson says in those days, Butte was effectively Montana from a financial point of view. The thing is, As the Anaconda Company continued to play and win at Monopoly, the mining city boomed. By the 19-teens, the population was climbing towards 100,000. It became the biggest and the richest city between Chicago and San Francisco. Well, it was more like two cities, with as many as 14,000 men now working underground. And every eight hours, at the end of their shifts, they would emerge from the depths, needing food, shelter, something to do. So Butte became a 24-hour city. Bars, shops, churches, boarding houses, union halls, ballrooms, theaters, and brothels line the dense city blocks. Mark Twain visited, Charlie Chaplin came, when a couple of guys named Martin and Mosby opened their saloon.
4: They came down and physically cut the locks off the front doors and flushed the keys down the toilets and said we will never close. And the front doors of the m M&M and were never locked between 1890 and 2003, not ever one time.
0: For Dick Gibson, the spirit of the day is perhaps best captured in the likeness of a giant antlered creature. In 1916, in honor of the Elks Convention, The city built a 62-foot-tall elk at the intersection of Broadway and Main Streets, right uptown. He showed me a grainy old photograph. Okay, that looks like the equivalent of Godzilla, but (laughs) in elk form standing next to this seven-story tower that we were just looking at.
4: Yep, he straddled the streetcar line. The streetcar went between his legs. He had flashing red lights 10 inches in diameter for eyeballs. They built it for the convention, and a couple weeks after the convention was over, they tore it down and threw it away.
0: So what does this symbolize for you? Why why do you like to tell this story?
4: It's the the opulence, the -the over-the-topness, the, oh my God, Butte can do anything it wants. In 1916, we can build the largest elk that there has ever been in the world and we can tear it down and send the skin which was impregnated with with copper to give it a texture back to the smelter and get twelve hundred dollars worth out of it (laughs) that's what they did (laughs) butte is everything from from the silly to the serious to the valuable to the cheap it's across the board diversity that i don't think has ever been seen in the united states
0: I would have loved to see, touch, taste, and feel the rowdy, cosmopolitan, sky's the limit Butte that existed a hundred years ago. It sounds like a real blast. Not to rain on the parade, but from another perspective, all the booze, prostitution, and hedonism, and even Butte's crown jewel, the beloved Columbia Gardens, could be viewed as bread and circus. Relatively cheap rewards provided, or at least tolerated, by the lords of the corporate fiefdom in exchange for the dangerous, backbreaking labor performed by their serfs. Because the riches coming out of the hill weren't exactly shared equally. The cost of living skyrocketed because of inflation, but miners' wages didn't. In 1913, a lot of them were earning $3.50 a day, the same pay as their grandfathers. Accidents were killing, on average, one miner every week, and silicosis was even more lethal. Then I checked out something miner Al Beavis, who we met last time, told me about that first day he went looking for work in the underground mines.
4: And then I was uh, 17 years old, so I went down to the and Card office. I walked in, and I looked like I was about 12, I guess. And uh, I told uh, John O'Brien that was behind the counter there, I said... Uh, I want to get a rustling card so I can go underground.
0: The Anaconda Company instituted the rustling card system in 1912. Here's how it worked. In order to get a job, you needed a card. But before the company would issue one, they would investigate you. And if they found anything they didn't like, say a safety complaint or a reputation for being a union agitator, no card and no job. And since one company owned virtually all of Butte's Mines, This meant they could blacklist anyone for any reason. As Anaconda continued to tighten its grip, organized labor struggled to confront the Goliath. Gibson says Butte might have once been the rock of American unionism.
4: But in some ways, that Gibraltar had a lot of cracks in it. We were almost too unionized for our own good. And to a certain extent, the company, the Anaconda Company, had learned how to divide and conquer. When you have multiple unions, 34 of them, that means you can find these little chinks in the armor, and the company did.
0: Divisions within the miners union ran so deep that in 1914 a faction of angry workers dynamited their own union hall into a pile of rubble.
4: But that touched off about six years of astonishing labor unrest. The midpoint three years later was the murder of Frank Little,
0: Writers and historians have described the Butte that Frank Little descended upon in 1917 as a volcano about to erupt, or a powder keg needing only a spark. Because World War I was really good for business. As the war escalated, demand for Butte's copper, which was a strategic material, spiked. So did its price. Anaconda went into a production frenzy, Cheap immigrant labor flowed in, and mine safety went out the window. Dear Pet, well, we're waiting for the end. I guess it won't be long. We take turns wrapping on the pipe, so if the rescue crew is around, they will hear us. That's an audio recording of a letter miner J.D. Moore wrote to his wife as he lay trapped underground. He was one of the victims of the 1917 Granite Mountain Speculator Mine disaster. In a nutshell, a cable accidentally caught fire, the fire spread, and the maze of mine shafts and tunnels filled with toxic smoke. A heartbreaking memorial at the top of the Butte Hill is dedicated to the 168 men who died mostly from suffocation in what is still the deadliest hard rock mining disaster in American history. Well,
5: my dear little wife, try not to worry. I know you will but trust in God. Everything will come out all right. There's a young fellow here, Clarence Marthy. He has a wife and two kiddies. Tell her we'd done the best we could, but the cards were against us.
0: After the tragedy, tensions between labor and the company reached a fever pitch. Miners, desperate for a response to the horrific conditions, launched a new union and went on strike. And the IWW's Frank Little jumped in to fan the flames of a worker-led revolution.
5: Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever.
0: By this time, copper production had come to a standstill and that proved to be an unacceptable risk to the government during wartime. After little was taken care of, troops were sent to occupy Butte. Fear and suspicion got so out of hand that the Montana legislature and then Congress passed the Sedition Act, which made it a crime to criticize the government or the war effort. By the end of the year, the strike had been snuffed out, and the mines were up and running. When another strike broke out three years later in 1920, company security guards opened fire on the picket line, killing one miner and wounding 16. They were all shot in the back.
4: At that point, the company had really taken complete control. The miners said, if they're going to kill us, what's our choice? And the answer was, you have no choice. Your choices are work or don't. Because if you're going to work, you're going to do what we say and we are going to decide if you
0: can work. Once Anaconda had solved its labor problem domestically, the company set their sights on an even bigger pot of red gold on a whole different continent. Next time on Richest Hill, Anaconda's expansion into Chile, and how taking the lid off mining changed Butte America forever.
2: Richest Hill is a production of Montana Public Radio. Nora Sachs is our host and reporter. I'm Nick Mott, our producer. Eric Whitney is our executive producer, and Josh Burnham is our digital editor. Our theme music is by Dublin Gulch. Other original music composed and performed by Jonas Benetta, Oren Pearson, and Nick Spear. Special thanks to Amanda Curtis, Dick Gibson, Aaron Siegel, Lenny Williams, Don LaRanger, Tom Pizega, Al Beavis, and NPR's Story Lab. Other sources include works by authors Janet Finn, Michael Punk, Isaac Markison, and Brad Tire. Stay up to date at ButtePodcast.org.